rests in people, not in technology or presentation or anything like that. And uh, part of that other message, we can go ahead and leave the slide up the whole time, Second uh, Samuel chapters. Part of the, the, the other uh, aspect of his presence is that um, uh, we want to be casual toward one another. We want to feel like we're in family in a really ugly living room when we come together. But we don't want to be casual in the presence of God. We want to be casual with one another but we want to be reverent towards God at all times. And maybe something that's been going on in the church in the North, North America in the last 15 or 20 years is redefining what the word reverence means. Reverence does not mean that everybody sits uh, you know, with their hands folded on their laps and we all speak in hushed tones. Uh, reverence means two things out of 2 Samuel 6. Reverence means doing things God's way and valuing his presence above all other things. That's what reverence really is. You know, you can think, well, you know, uh, you know I think it's a good idea to do it this way, but uh, the, the Lord gave very specific instructions as to how the ark was to be carried, how the ark was to be handled, where the ark was to be. And when those instructions were followed, in other words, when our lives came in line with God's instructions, his presence benefited everybody around. So uh, we're, we're looking to be casual with one another, but we're looking to be reverent towards God. Um, and uh, part of the challenge is, especially in our blue jean kind of culture, is that, you know, we think, well, whatever works for everything, including whatever works for God. But whatever doesn't work for God, uh, he is the king and the master of the universe. He's loving. We're going to explore the mercies of God today. But at the same time, real reverence means that we obey God's instructions about how we come uh, uh, into his presence. And then in week two, click, in week two, uh, we looked at uh, Psalm 100, uh, which the very first line is, shout joyfully to the Lord all of the earth. And, uh, I, and uh, I caught this on the audio archive because I was out of town last week, and I really appreciated Adam's word. How many of you caught this when Adam said, serious is not a fruit of the Spirit? Did you catch that? But joy is a fruit of the Spirit. You see, part of worship, part of experiencing the presence of God is to find a place of joy that cannot be found anyplace else. <coughs> Excuse me. If I win the lottery, I'm going to be happy. But I'm also going to invite a whole boatload of problems into my life. And at some point I'll go, Oy vey, I wish I didn't have, you know, hadn't won all of that money. The joy of the Lord is something that doesn't depend on our outward circumstances. The joy of the Lord doesn't, ex uh, doesn't depend on whatever we're experiencing or even the condition of our health. The joy of the Lord depends on recognizing that he's God and we're not. And, uh, and Psalm 100, uh, in terms of a primer on what it means to praise and worship God, is as good as it gets. It's right there. It's easy to remember. Its address is Psalm 100. And it gives us what we need to understand of what worship is all about. And uh, most importantly, uh, you know, for me, because, you know, I'm, I'm a holdover from the 60s and 70s, corporate worship starts with a shout. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. And uh, when, you know, we went back into a worship time last week when Adam taught, my understanding is, is that he invited people to shout before the Lord. Did that happen? Did it release something? I want to know where it says in the Bible that shouting is just for children's church. 
I want to know where it says in the Bible that worship for adults has to be dignified and you sit there and sip your coffee and you tap your foot while the band is getting it on. You see, worship, especially corporate worship, is meant to be demonstrative. Corporate worship is meant to be big before God because we have so much to be thankful for. And I like the way Eugene Peterson translates Psalm 100. In in the message, he says, giving thanks or thankfulness is the password into God's presence. And I think Adam quoted that as well. You want to get into God's presence? Here's the password. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right, so that was week one, the presence of God. Week two was uh, the joyful shouting that comes. And today, what I want to talk about, click. Today, what I want to talk about is in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, uh, I want to talk about developing a lifestyle of worship that manifests itself in mercy, sacrifice, and transformation. So if you brought a Bible today, and I hope you did, why don't we uh, take a look at uh, chapter 12, verses uh, 1 and 2. And let me give you a little bit of background on what's going on in Romans 12, 1 and 2. This is like the monster theological epistle of the New Testament. Uh, The Apostle Paul had never visited the city of Rome at the time that he wrote this letter. He eventually makes it to Rome, but Rome's the big apple. Rome is Paris and London and New York all rolled into one. And there is a nascent and healthy church in Rome of which Paul is aware and he wants to visit. And it's like, you know, you know, when the cops come to your door, you all know what that's like, right? When the cops come to your door and, you know, they flash their credentials, you know, Mr. Hollenbach, FBI, you know? And, you know, and I don't know why they flash their credentials because, you know, if I saw a fake FBI badge, I wouldn't know it from a real one, right? But what, what the, the letter to Romans is about in, in its most simplistic form is Paul is flashing his credentials because he wants to visit Rome. He wants uh, the Roman church to help him on his way to take the gospel all the way to the Atlantic Ocean by going to Spain. And he also, because he is this remarkably gifted apostle, he wants to bless the church by imparting even more instruction and spiritual gifting. And so it's the most theological letter. And starting in chapter 1 and going all the way through to chapter 11, it's just heavy plowing. Anybody ever fallen asleep reading Romans? Oh, come on. I fell asleep twice this week trying to read it from the beginning just to prepare for this message. I mean, it's heavy lifting. It's tough reading. Uh, It's also glorious. But, you know, he does all of this theological work, gets through chapter 11, and when we pick it up in chapter 12, Paul makes this transition that he makes in every single one of his letters. And the the transition is from theology to application. From book learning to living. And that's what's going on right here at the turn after 11 chapters of working hard to give us the foundation of the gospel. You know Romans 1 16 where he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. Everyone who believe in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed first, you know, to the, to the Jew and then to the Gentile, you know, and then he, you know, that's like the thesis statement that your English teacher told you to do. And then, you know, he just unloads for 11 chapters and it's, it's so rich. And then here in chapter 12 is where he's turning the corner into life application from theology. And he says this simply, therefore I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy 
and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and his perfect will. And you see, in our six-week series on worship, we want to emphasize right here in the middle of this six-week series that worship is about more than just dancing in the back of the room. Worship is about more than the emotional interaction that we, that we feel when we come into God's presence. Now, I'm big on emotional interaction. How many of you know we're supposed to love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength? How many of you know that if you don't have an emotional interaction with God, you don't have a full relationship with God? You know, my wife and I, we've been married 25 years. What if I told you, intellectually, my wife and I, we just have such a good relationship. We know the meaning of every word that each one says. What if I told you that we totally understand, you know, the roots and the, you know, where all of the statements that each other says, where they come from. And then someone says, yeah, but how do you feel about your wife? I go, feel? No, I've studied my wife. I know her really well. You would know that's a marriage that's in trouble, right? All right, so I'm all for an emotional interaction with God, and and especially in a place of worship, it is entirely appropriate. It's commonplace among visitors to the vineyard uh, for us to hear this story. People say, you know, I, I came in and, you know, like the music was surprisingly loud, and I didn't know what was going on, and I'd never heard the songs before, but about the second or third song, I found myself crying for no good reason. I'd like to posit that that's the presence of the Holy Spirit, even when our intellect is not aware of what's going on. And I want our intellect to be aware of what's going on, you know, uh, uh, but at the same time, we need to encounter God emotionally. In addition to encountering God emotionally, we need to be able to live a lifestyle of worship. And that's what Paul immediately presses upon these people in Rome to whom he's writing. He presses upon them that given the theological foundation that he laid in the first 11 chapters, that there is a lifestyle of worship that's going to be characterized by recognizing the mercies of God and uh, that by offering themselves as a living sacrifice, they can find transformation and that all of those things together are our spiritual service of worship. In fact, these verses uh, have given translators fits uh, throughout the years because uh, your Bible might say it's your logical service before God as opposed to your spiritual worship before God. Um, There there is so much content packed in in, uh, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, that uh, no one translation fully does the job. Now, the most common translation in the evangelical church in North America these days is the uh, New International Version. Uh, and uh, that's what we're using here today. But, you know, I'd encourage you to go online to like BibleGateway.com or to StudyLight.org, one of those places, and click on the multi-translation just to see, you know, the, the, the vast differences that there are in translating this verse. Which one's correct? They all are, because there's so much meaning packed into God's Word. But for today, the three points that I want to get across are the the mercy of God, recognizing the mercy of God, the sacrifice that he calls us to make, and the transformation that comes from it. So let's talk about mercy. Click. Let's talk about mercy. When, When Paul says 
Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, he's not just saying something like, you know, heavens to Murgatroyd, or he's not just like coming up with some phrase out of the middle of nowhere. He's actually referring to the mercy of God, which has already caused him to worship while he's writing the letter. How many of you know that the chapter and verse distinctions in our Bible were not a part of the original script? Do you know that three times before in chapter 11, Paul has referred to God's mercy? You can start in chapter 11, verse 30, and he talks about the interplay between our disobedience and the mercies of God. And then he talks about the disobedience of other people and the mercies of God and and our disobedience and how other people will, will get the mercy of God because of it. He talks about the mercy of God three times and it causes him to break out in, in this song, it's a worship song in the middle of the letter, chapter 11, verse 33, he says, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments, his paths beyond tracing out. Who's known the mind of the Lord? Who's been his counselor? Who's ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. You see, Paul began to reflect on the mercies of God just a few verses before chapter 12 started. And as he reflected on the mercies of God, it actually caused him to break out into worship. In our very text-oriented society, we miss the importance of worship at the end of Paul's theology. He reflects on the mercies of God and it causes him to break forth in song. Maybe your Bible has one of those fancy theological words, doxology, right? You know, like it's the word of doctrine. Nonsense. That was a worship song that either Paul spontaneously broke into as he was dictating the the letter of Romans, or he was put in mind of a worship song that they sang in either Corinth or or Ephesus or, or maybe even in Antioch in his home church. And so he's talking about the mercies of God, and it causes him to break out into worship. You see, when we reflect on the mercies of God, the reasonable response in our lives should be to worship God. It happened to Paul while he was writing the letter. And yes, I guess, theologically, it's a doxology, but the reality is is that he talked about the goodness and the mercy of God, and it caused him to break into song. You know, they had it right in The Sound of Music. You start to feel really good, and so you just break out into song. You know? Uh, life ought to be a musical. Let me say that. Life ought to be a musical. You know? Honey, this roast beef is so good. Your roast beef is the best roast beef. You know? And then, of course, you look at your wife, and magically she's got on pearls and a chiffon dress, and the two of you start just dancing through the living room. I got news for you. Life ought to be a musical. And it especially ought to be a musical when we're considering the mercies of God and the mercies of God lead us to a place of worship. He didn't just say, he didn't just say, because of the mercies of God, I urge you to, you know, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. He had already been moved by the mercies of God. And he says, if we've got any sense as well, we ought to be moved by the mercies of God. Now, Here's, here's the, the application question. 
are we convinced of the mercies of God? Individually, are you, am I, are we convinced about the mercies of God? You see, the reason that we'll go on in this text to present our bodies as a living sacrifice is because we will willingly give ourselves to the goodest, bestest, most powerfulest, most omnipotentest being on the planet. But you won't give yourself over to someone unless you're convinced of their heart toward you. Right? Does a, does a bride come down the aisle and give herself to her husband if she's really got serious questions about whether or not he has her best interests at heart? I hope not. You know, we wouldn't tell, we wouldn't tell a young bride, well, just lower your standards. He'll do. <laughs> no, when that girl turns the corner and she comes down the aisle, she wants to give herself to the person that she believes loves her most on this earth. So I want to ask it again. As we live our lives, are we convinced of the mercies of God? I'll give you some practical suggestions. Something to meditate on during the week. Did you know you'd get homework when you came to church? Am I convinced of the mercies of God? Try this one. He gave me his son when I was an enemy to God. You see, somebody might possibly want to die for a righteous person. You know, I'd take a bullet for Mother Teresa. Well, she's dead. I wouldn't take one for her now. But I would take a bullet for Mother Teresa, right? Because she's, she's good. But you see, God showed his love for us in that while we were separated and alienated from us, he caused his son to be sacrificed on our behalf. And then Paul, reflecting on that, says, look, if God gave us his son while we were his enemies, you know the rest of this passage, how much more will he not freely give us all things in Christ? He's already proven that he's on our side. He's given us his son. Now, I know that preaches well in church and everybody goes, yeah, that's the thing the preacher's supposed to say. But during the week, think about that. Can you trust the mercies of God? Well, I don't know. He sacrificed his only begotten son. Or how about this? The testimony of the scriptures. This is another exercise during the week. The testimony of the scriptures is is that God's mercies are new every morning. Every morning. How many of you like to wake up to biscuits? How many of you like to wake up to last week's biscuits? Oh, God, you know, you gave me Jesus 2,000 years ago. No offense, Jesus. You see, God's mercies are new, fresh-baked, whipped up from scratch every morning. Would you like a spiritual discipline that could change your life and cause you to break into song about the roast beef? Before your feet hit the floor, you, you, know, that, you know, that moment when you, you realize, oh, hey, I am awake, you know? Before your feet actually hit the floor, ask God to show you his mercies for that day. See, while you were sleeping, he was busy whipping up fresh mercies for you. From the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, the name of the Lord is to be praised. 
And I know how my house is situated. I know what windows the sun, the morning sun comes up. I know that over there, you know, if I'm, I'm kind of situating myself in my house, over there he's already been working on fresh mercies in my life. And if I can, can I use this word with respect to worship? If I can discipline myself to meditate on the mercies of God, and if I can discipline my mind to turn that direction first, then before my feet hit the floor, I've got a good start on living a lifestyle of worship. So number one, let's meditate on the, on the mercies of God through the, the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. Number two, let's consider that his mercies are new for us every single morning. And then number three is if we can actually become convinced of his mercies, we ought to ask ourselves, what is the proper response to the mercies of God? What is the proper response when someone shows you mercy? You know, you'd, anybody ever lose your wallet and have somebody return it? Are you grateful that all the credit cards and the cash are there? You know, anybody ever pulled you back? I, when we adopted our, our third child uh, and, and we were in uh, Nanchang, uh, they, they drive differently in China than they do here. And I started out to cross the street, and somebody literally pulled me back. And as, you know, when they pulled you back, and I was a little bit startled, I put my hand up like this, and this hand got clipped by the mirror on a truck. But the difference is, is that I would much rather have a couple of fingers clipped. And so what did I do to the person who pulled my clothes? Did I say, hey, keep your hands to yourself? Or did I say, thank you? You know? I would be just like the bugs on the windshield if somebody hadn't pulled me back. Uh, you know, if we become convinced of his mercies, the second step in living a life of worship is what is the proper response once we understand the mercies of God? And it can start with simple things. Food to eat, that's very important to me. Clothes to wear, not so important, just as long as I got something. A roof over my head, pretty important. You know, the mercies of God begin to pile up one day after another. Just go ask the people in Haiti. Just go ask the people in Chile. Just go ask anybody who has ever had the basics of life in the balance, and they'll tell you how thankful they are for them. Right? Those two are part of the mercies of God. And Paul, in urging us to lead a life of worship, says it must be based on our grasp of the mercies of God. So we're, now we're going to take 15 seconds of silence. Not for me to drink coffee, but 15 seconds of silence for you to think about a mercy. So let's just do this, okay? Jesus, sweet spirit of God, make us mindful again of your mercy in our life. Now, I don't know if that was 15 seconds, but that's as long as it takes in the morning to begin to reset the mechanism to lead a life of worship. That's as long as it takes. How long does it really take God to speak to you? Does God have to start at chapter 1 and go all the way through 11 chapters to build his theological foundation? Or can he in an instant? See, it says actually that the word of God is living and active 
sharper than any two-edged sword, able to divide even the marrow from the bone. And, it, and, and that, that's the scripture part. It happens in an instant, is my experience. Okay? Those are the mercies of God that lead to a, a life of worship. Click. But then Paul says, I urge you to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Raymond, let's go to the next slide if we could. Uh, I urge you to offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. And, you know, first of all, let's just do a, a quick 21st century check. When we hear the word sacrifice, we could think in terms of an athlete that works incredibly hard. You know, uh, Kentucky, John Wall. Oh, by the way, con- congrats to Louisville Cardinals, beat the number one team in the nation, blah, blah, blah. But those Wildcats, let me talk about them. Um, John Wall not only is, is considered to be like the best co- collegiate player, but you hear his coach bragging him all the time that he's the hardest worker, you know, that he's the one that's working the hardest in the weight room. Um, he says he's the hardest worker academically. I'm not sure if I necessarily believe that given college athletics, but that's another sermon for another day. But, but you see, it's not just that he's crazy gifted because we are all crazily gifted, but he also works hard. And in our 21st century context, we think of the word sacrifice as like in giving money or in working hard or, you know, uh, taking the kids to go see the tooth fairy when you're really not interested in seeing the rock dressed up as a tooth fairy. All of those things are the kind of sacrifices that we have to make. But that isn't what the first century world thought when they heard the word sacrifice. They thought of dead animals sitting on a rock probably without a big red sheet underneath of it. They thought of, they thought of, and, 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 and let's, can I make this as real as possible? They thought of the smell of dead animals. They thought of the smell of roasting flesh. They, they thought of the sound of flies that would be buzzing around, even in, you know, quote, the temple. They, they thought of what it meant to have to take even a lamb and pick that dead carcass up and whomp, throw it on the altar. Everybody, not just the Jewish people, the entire ancient world practiced animal sacrifice. You worship Aphrodite, throw something on the altar. You worship Mars, throw something on the altar. Uh, Their idea of sacrifice was something dead that was whomp, thrown up there on the altar. The Jewish system of worship, in fact, the whole liturgy thing, revolved around sacrifice. Were you thankful to God? Give a sacrifice of grain. Did you want a really good harvest? Sacrifice the first fruits. Did you, uh, did you sin and you want to be forgiven of your sin? Sacrifice something. Are you happy your kid was born healthy? Sacrifice something. The entire Old Testament world, the entire first century world, understood that sacrifice meant a dead carcass or you know, of an animal or of something that had been harvested and was no longer living and was thrown on the altar. And then Paul says... Offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. Now, I I, I heard something once and I thought, oh, well, this will be really original. So, you know, I'll throw it into the sermon because I'm supposed to tell jokes. Uh, It's the the problem with a living sacrifice is that it keeps crawling off the altar. Well, it turns out people have been saying that for 30 or 40 or 100 years or whatever it's been. It's not all that original. I, I looked it up on the internet, you know, and Rick Warren has said it, and, you know, Billy Graham has said it, and Spurgeon said it, and all these guys had already said it. But it occurred to me while I was looking it up, 
that that's not the problem with a living sacrifice. That's precisely the point of a living sacrifice is that the living sacrifice can get up off of the altar and go on with everyday business. You see, Paul is saying it's precisely the point that you are alive and not dead, and it is precisely the point that you can get up and you can leave the altar and take with you the fragrance of that offering to God. You see, lambs and bulls cannot move, but we can. And I want you to think that through for a second in terms of a life of worship. That means that the sacred place is no longer at the altar. The sacred place is not at the temple in Jerusalem, 21st century. The sacred place is not up front here at church or any church where, you know, you come forward, you know, to receive ministry or to repent before God. The sacred place isn't here. The sacred place is wherever you go. The sacred place, the living sacrifice begins to push and extend the temple out beyond the limits of this room. And it means that all of the earth becomes his temple. You see, Peter explained it. I think Peter understood this in his epistle. He said, you all have been made into a temple of living stones. And, you know, first, you know, I tried to imagine, oh, living stones, they're vibrant, they're singing, blah, blah, blah. And it just occurred to me, you see, the God of the universe cannot be contained in a house built by human hands. And so instead, what he wants are living sacrifices that extend the grace and the mercy of God out beyond these walls. It's precisely the point that you should crawl off the altar. You have become the sacrifice out in the world. And Paul is making this point that we are called to be a living sacrifice for God out there. How is it that we worship? You see, these dead animals that were thrown on the altar, that was worship back then. I mean, it was part of their liturgy, and yes, they had music, but, you know, the highlight of, you know, of, well, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the highlight of the worship was what? Kill the beast, drain the blood, sprinkle it, we're all clean. Good worship service. The highlight of worship in the Christian church as followers of Jesus is that the living sacrifices moved by the mercies of God carry the mercies of God beyond the room. Where are you headed this afternoon? You're God's living sacrifice in that situation. Where will you be tomorrow? You're God's living sacrifice in that situation. And if we have any grasp at all of the mercies of God, then we begin to say, I am God's living sacrifice in the home, in the workplace, in school, on the golf course if you're retired, uh, you know, whatever, you know, wherever you go. And, and in fact, Paul even described it this way, again, referring to these common experiences they all had, said, we are the sweet aroma You know, that that roasting animal that you would smell as the Levitical priest would take the sacrifice and begin to cook it. We are the sweet aroma that carry the presence of God wherever we go. You guys are the living sacrifice. I I hope that means something to you because God's calling us to extend the temple beyond these four walls. Presence of God 
used to be in the temple, used to be with the ark. The presence of God now is in us, the living stones. And then he says this. This is your spiritual act of worship, to be this living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Verse 2, don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but just simply, click, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I want to tell you a little parable. I think it's an Aesop fable, or I made it up like this week. I don't know which of these it is, okay? There was a worm, and there was a worm who watched one day as a caterpillar crawled past him. And the worm looked as the caterpillar crawled up the tree, and the caterpillar found a place on the leaf. And the worm thought, what in the world is he doing up there? And the worm watched the caterpillar spin that chrysalis, that cocoon, that thing, and the worm thought, well, that's the strangest thing I've ever seen. And a few days later, you know where this is headed, the worm goes by and gets to see this incredible butterfly emerge from the cocoon. And the worm begins to think, well, he's no different than I am. I mean, you know, he crawls along the ground. I can do what he can do. So what does the worm do? The worm crawls up the tree. The worm finds the leaf. The worm gets out on the leaf and says, well, you know, I can't quite spin that thing, but I can at least wrap this leaf around me, you know, and I'll hide in here for a couple of days. And then after I've hidden in here for a couple of days, I'll open it up and I'll have these beautiful wings. So he waits for two days. He gets a little bored. He opens up the leaf, and there's a bird ready to just eat him and consume him. I don't know. It was Aesop's fault. And the moral of the story is, is if you don't have the caterpillar's DNA, you have no chance of transformation. That's what kind of story it is. If you don't have the DNA that comes ready to transform you, then you have no chance of transformation. How many of you all have resolved to be better people, to work harder, to do all of those things that are the good things that we're supposed to do in religion, right? But let me tell you where it starts. Transformation starts with the dynamic of a new birth, a new birth in Jesus Christ that literally changes your capacity. You look, The nicest person on the earth who works as hard as they can at the end of the day is still dead in their sin. But something happens or should happen in the dynamic of the new birth to where our very potential is changed at the moment that we receive Jesus as our Savior. And this is important because there are plenty of people sitting in plenty of churches. No, wait, that's too polite There are people seated in these chairs who think, this is a nice group of people. I kind of like the music. Everybody's nice to me here. I'll fit in. I'll even go teach in children's church or I'll offer to help clean up or I'll, you know, I'll do whatever I can so that I can fit in. But the question is, have you experienced the dynamic of a new birth that changes your absolute potential? And you know, there are so many things that we hold here at the, the vineyard, hold dear here at the vineyard, but rarely do we, you know, do we ever just absolutely come out and say, you must be born again. The potential 
isn't in you until you give your life to God. And it doesn't take much to give your life to God. Something happens, you know, the sci-fi nerd in me says something happens to the molecular structure, you know. It's like watching, you know, the amazing Hulk, you know, movie. His whole DNA was changed, and now he can be big and green and strong and mean, you know. Um, Something has got to happen at the core level that changes our life. And that something is when we repent because the kingdom of God is breaking into the here and now. And repentance means to rethink your whole way of living to make room for Jesus to come into your life and to say, God, change me from the inside out. How many of you know the worm could try to change itself from the outside in all it wanted to? But real transformation doesn't happen except from the inside out. You can say, I'm going to try hard not to cuss anymore. Good luck. You could say, I'm going to try hard not to do this anymore or I'm going to try hard to especially do this more. But apart from committing your life to Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, as saying, you know what? You are the raison d'etre. You're the reason for being. You are my master. There is no potential for transformation. And any transformation that we attempt from the outside in is doomed to failure. The bird's waiting to pluck us up. And this is so important because Paul says, don't be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, the caterpillar, does it do anything to be transformed? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, I asked the question. I think it's a really interesting question. You see, it's in the DNA of the caterpillar to achieve transformation, but the caterpillar cooperates with its destiny. It does have to leave the ground, climb the tree, find the leaf, spin the cocoon. In other words, the caterpillar puts itself in position for the DNA to take effect. And I believe with all my heart, I've been a pastor for you know, a little while, but I've been a Christian for a lot longer. I believe with all my heart that there are plenty of Christians that have the DNA to become Christ-like. They have the DNA to become followers of Jesus. They have the DNA to do what it says in Matthew 10 that Adam refers to all the time. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the leper, preach the gospel by healing the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the leper. There are plenty of Christians who have the potential, the DNA is there, but we've never put ourselves in position to be transformed. In the final analysis... Only God changes us. But getting to the final analysis, we are responsible for putting ourselves in position. It's what the people that concentrate on spiritual formation, they talk about the means of grace, the disciplines of grace. You see, it's the grace of God that changes us. But apart from positioning ourselves to receive God's grace, it's just not going to happen. And even well-meaning academic people say, huh, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Well, then I'm going to find out that the, the verb is in the passive and it's continuous. And so they begin to study what? They begin to study language. Studying language doesn't put yourself in the position to be transformed. I guarantee you this, 15 seconds of asking God to show you his new mercies every day will put you in position to be transformed by the grace of God. 
We, the, the 21st century North American church, have traded knowledge. We've begun to think that knowledge is the same thing as being. We think that because we can say Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in order, or we can start at Genesis and go all the way to Revelation, and we know all of the books, and because we can quote scripture verses, somehow we're going to be changed. You see, the renewing of your mind is not by studying harder. The renewing of your mind is by doing what Jesus said from the very beginning, repent, rethink. The word repent doesn't mean feel sorry for emotionally. It means to rethink your whole way of living. 15 seconds in the morning before your feet hit the floor could actually be the agent of transformation into a lifestyle of worship. Practicing the discipline of thanksgiving, as Eugene Peterson said, thank you is the password into God's presence. That can change you. Sitting back, and if I can say this, I can. I'm I'm just the staff pastor. Adam's, you know, I I should say the hard stuff. That sitting back and sipping your coffee while you watch other people give praise and honor and glory to God is not transformative. Fully entering into worship becomes transformative. There, I said it. Enjoy the coffee. He says, be transformed. It's passive. God has to do a work in us, but we have to position ourselves to receive his grace. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Let me ask you one more question, and then I'll finish up. Let me ask you one more question about the human mind. Where does the mind end and the body begin? How does the mind express itself? You ever seen any of those weird sci-fi movies where there's just a brain in a jar? Right? My favorite, by the way, being Young Frankenstein. You know, abnormal brain. Do not use this brain. If you haven't seen Young Frankenstein, you are missing it. Abby someone, Abby, Abby someone, Abby normal. Where, where does the mind express itself? How does the mind express itself? Where does the mind end and the body begin? It is a very 21st century question. The first century inspired word of God answer is, is that they are seamless. It is one garment. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Offer your very selves as the living sacrifice before God. You see, when my mind is carried away with unclean thoughts, it eventually finds expression in unclean actions. And oddly enough, because the door swings both ways, when I, when I offer my very body as the living sacrifice to God, it can begin to impact my mind. Just make an agreement with God. I'm not going to let my feet touch the floor unless I meditate on the mercies of God. You see, our bodies really are an extension of our mind. We exercise our mind through the use of our body. Anybody here watch The Biggest Loser? Anybody? Yeah, I do. You can admit it if you want. Well, maybe I'm just really middle-aged and I watch too much TV. You know, you, you ask the people who go from incredible, you know, obesity 
to being really fit, if you ask them where was the transformation accomplished, how was the transformation accomplished, they won't talk about caloric intake. They won't even talk about exercise. They'll talk about what? Change of mind. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. One of the physical parts of our body that we should offer to God is our mind. Jesus said, it's, it's the first word in the gospel, repent, because the kingdom of heaven is breaking in. The word repent in the New Testament, actually, it's meta, like metamorphosis, and noia, as in nos, the, the mind, not annoying, right? Meta, noia, change your mind, change your way of thinking, because the kingdom of God is breaking in. Be transformed. You need the DNA of God by making a full commitment to Jesus as Lord and Savior. And after you've made that commitment and the DNA is there, you offer the individual parts of your body as instruments of righteousness to God and the body and the soul are reunited and there is no difference between mind and body. How many of you know if if you're sick, you just, you feel lousy, not physically, like, you know, the whole world can just go jump in a lake, right? What is that? That's the, that's the exertion of the body on the mind. And how many of you know that a happy heart makes healthy like a good medicine? It works both ways. It's one seamless garment. Offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. Place yourself in a, in a spot where God can transform you. And the place to put yourself is the place of recognizing his mercies and being thanks, thankful for them. This is, it says right in the book, your spiritual service of worship. Would that all of God's people danced and sang before him. Would that people fell down prostrate before God Hannah, every Sunday morning. Yes? All of that. But would that we also lived a life of worship that changes our life. So I've got one more slide. I really like this painting because it's it's by Salvador Dali and it's of the, the Last Supper. But what I like is that the boundaries of where they are celebrating the sacrament are breaking down. In fact, you can look right through the body of Christ and see the fisherman's boat. You see, it is precisely because the living sacrifice can crawl off of the altar that we will impact the world. It is precisely because the holy place is not these purple walls and purple chairs. The holy place is wherever we go. That's why we live a life of worship. A worshipful person working third shift at Walmart can change the store. A worshipful person sitting in a boardroom of a corporation can change the economy. A worshipful person taking care of children at home can change the future. A worshipful person who who performs whatever task God has given to them. You know, if if you're in the business world, a worshipful person can transform the business world. If you're a student, you can transform your classroom alone by your actions. That's why it's a life of worship. Hannah, you want to bring the the band back up? What we've been doing during our six weeks is... um, What we've been doing during our six weeks is we've been cutting short the worship set at the beginning of church. 
so that we can go out on a worship set. And while the band's getting set up, let me ask if any of the people that were at the uh, Vineyard Ministry team, team retreat this weekend, I'd like you guys to come forward here at the altar to be prayer partners for anyone who wants to receive from God. You see, you might have come to church today looking for healing in your body. That woman that was delivered from these tumors or cysts that were all up and down her spinal column, she found that in worship. And these folks that are making their way forward, they're, gonna, they're just willing to pray with you about whatever you need. You might need a healing touch in your body. You can receive that here today. You might need to be transformed in your mind. You might need to know what it means to meet Jesus for the first time. And this will be a good place to do it. The music will be loud, and that makes for privacy. All right? So let's do this. I'm going to pray a prayer. I'm going to ask you to stand up, and we're going to worship. If you need to go, God bless you. But at the same time, if you want to go out on worship, you can stay. The band is going to worship the Lord for just, you know, however long Hannah wants to, right? Is that right? So would you stand? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you proved your goodness and your mercy to us a long time before we ever knew you. We're grateful for your kindness in our lives. And we say, come Holy Spirit, come presence of God, and teach us again what it means to worship you, body, soul, mind, heart, and strength. Lord, you're worthy of all that we have. You're worthy of our very being. So receive it now in your name. Come together in this place glorify your name with simple praise with simple praise